0: I do not trust the sweetest frame. Do you know what that means? Uh, Frame the frame of mind. Yeah. You know, I do not trust in the feeling. Some days we feel good. You know, on a spiritual high, so to speak. But I do not trust in that. The next verse, when darkness seems to hide his face. We're on a not so spiritual high. While I'm going to rest on his Unchanging grace you know a lot of people sometimes make the mistake of trying to work up good feelings of God uh, instead of just being guiding it and resting on truth John Reisinger once gave what I thought was a great example a great illustration of assurance and sometimes uh, people can make an idol out of it but The illustration he gave was back in the old days, a couple of hundred years ago, when everyone travelled about by horseback, no motor vehicles in, in those days, and there was a man travelling home from work, in, um, and it, suddenly it was a snowy day, the whole place was covered in snow, and this man suddenly realised he was walking upon a, a frozen lake. Now the man was terrified, he knew the depth of this lake, and he also knew he could not swim. If the ice broke, he was going to perish. So absolutely terrified, this man, he he, he just crouched down and and, uh, just so afraid, he crawled slowly across the ice with no confidence. But the moment he got off on the other side, he saw this great big heavy six horse-drawn carriage just thunder across the ice, not even a dent in it. So the man was furious with himself. For being so scared on such strong ice. So he ran back on the ice, this time full of confidence. He jumped up and down and then went home. And this is the point of the illustration. At, at which point was the guy safer? Was it when he had full assurance? Was it when he had full confidence and he was jumping up and down? Or was it when he was terrified? At which point was he safer? yeah the answer is both times because the man 's safety did not depend upon how confident he was. It depended upon uh, the strength of the ice in which he was standard as uh, standard. you know I got a, an email this morning asking for counsel and one uh, yesterday also someone troubled about the soul and and uh, looking really back and forth at Christ and performance right you know I've I've believed this now my performance but you know never make the believing your believing your hope Christ is what we rest in you know his finished work though what we've done not not uh, not Christ has done his part now I will do mine we do ours out of gratitude of course but but rest wholly uh, on Jesus name Okay, if we open our Bibles to Matthew 4 verse 17, it's great to be here and just these last this last week uh, to see what the Lord's doing in all of your lives here. I want to speak today on the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, a joy in the kingdom, what it is. So... We all stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read Matthew 4, verse 17, and then we'll pray. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would be pleased to teach us now by your spirit, through your word, that you would sanctify us by this truth, that you would open up our hearts, ears and minds, help us to be doers of your word. I pray, Lord, this sermon would increase our faith and thankfulness and joy in you. Call people into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated okay in Matthew 4 17 here we are given a a summary statement if you like of the sermon but it says here Jesus began to preach it's the Lord the message our Lord was proclaiming was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when Jesus, he begins his ministry here, he, he he announces a kingdom. Repent for, this is why you must repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is what I want us to consider today, this this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And the word kingdom basically means to reign or to rule when you think of the uh, the kingdom or uh, of God you're, you're speaking of the reign or rule of God and and by kingdom of heaven uh, you, you sometimes see the, uh, the phrase in scripture kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God well it basically means exactly the same thing and, and this is very easy to prove because uh, like in the example in Matthew's gospel in the parable of the leaven it uses the term, king, the kingdom of heaven is like there. Well, in the same parable in Luke, it says the kingdom of God is like. At the the beginning of uh, John the Baptist's ministry, his message was summarized as repent uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew's gospel, whereas in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist's method was, uh, message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So all I'm pointing out there is the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven means the same thing so the, the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God to define it is a kingdom where God reigns as king if someone is in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God it means that God is their king it means if you're in the kingdom of heaven then you are one of God's people you're one of his subjects God is reigning all, over all those in the kingdom of heaven. As Psalm 11 says, the Lord's throne is in heaven. And throne there meaning God reigns, he's a sovereign ruler. You see, uh, when you, I mean even that word throne, when you see it in scripture, it's figurative language there in one sense, obviously it does not mean a, a literal church. It's like when you see it in Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Obviously, God, the father is spirit. He doesn't need a a literal chair. And when Jesus says that, you know that the believers are going to be sat on thrones and stuff. Well, we're all sat on his throne at his right hand. It's not going to be this Literal show with Jesus on and all the believers piled up on top. You see, what it means there is there, it denotes the reign and the rule of God. The reign of Jesus, the God-man, where Christ is king. That's what we're talking about. So, by the, the kingdom of heaven that our Lord is announcing in this text, it means the reign of God. Uh, Jesus is preaching a kingdom, repent, a coming to a kingdom where God rules. Now, if you think about this with me, because a kingdom is a realm or, or a jurisdiction. A kingdom is a place. And there, there, there is a people in a kingdom who are under the king's rule. Or at least that's how it would have looked in the, in the first century AD. Or that's how it would have thought of. But notice Jesus said here, you have to repent to come into this kingdom. So, not everybody is in this kingdom, in one sense, but you have to repent to come into it. So why do we have to repent? Well, the story goes back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2 and 3. You see, the king, if, if you want to sum up the kingdom of God, you can do it like this. The kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place under God's rule and whilst we live under God's rule in his kingdom we enjoy the blessings of God now this—that that is life uh, as God intended it to be that is how God created the world, life is true life is living in the kingdom of God God's people in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing and so consider how this looked before the fall Back in Genesis 2 there, we are told of God's people there, who were Adam and Eve. They were living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they were under God's rule. He told them, go forth, subdue the earth, multiply and so forth. And what they did, they was to do for the glory of God there, be light bearers. And he also gave them the command there not to eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil and whilst God's people Adam and Eve obeyed God and were content to live under his rule they got to stay in God's place the garden of Eden and stay under his blessing they stayed you know God blessed the seventh the Sabbath day and made it holy and so they lived in God's rest but the condition was it was as long as they obeyed and lived under God's rule, as long as they had God as king over them, they could stay in the kingdom. But what happened there? Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve, they took the fruit that God forbade, forbade and as a consequence of that, God put Adam and Eve out of God's place. They were put out of his kingdom. They were no longer under God's blessing. What happened? They went under the opposite of the blessing, they went under the curse. So, you see the example there of, of the kingdom of God pictured with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And this message of the kingdom, it, it goes, God announcing a kingdom, it goes right throughout the Bible. You see, right from the beginning at Genesis 3, even when, when God promises the seed there who will crush the serpent's head God is saying he is announcing I am going to bring back my people into my kingdom and you see we see this right through the pages of the Old Testament the kingdom of God is pictured in the Old Testament nation of Israel Uh, there you have God's people the nation of Israel the ethnic Jews living in God's place the promised land of Canaan living under God's rule, in their case, the law of Moses. And as long as they adhered to that law outwardly as a nation, they could stay in the land, in God's place, and enjoy God's blessing. You see, this message that God is going to bring people back to the garden, I mean, it just runs through the pages of Scripture. This is why when you see the Old Testament tabernacle, there under Moses the tent of meeting and also the temple it has all these symbols like palm trees and and pomegranates his message is I'm going to bring you back into my garden in fellowship The, the thief on the cross remember when he cried out to the Lord at last Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom what did Jesus say my kingdom it's not for a couple of thousand years on no no today you will be with me in paradise. And the word paradise there means a garden. Not meaning we'll go back to the literal garden of Eden, but we will go back to how it was, is the idea, in the garden of Eden. That means man having fellowship with God though. You see, you see, sometimes people think of uh, eternal life as like the front cover of a, a Jehovah's Witness pam- pamphlet or a kind of Mennonite thing where you just have you know a man no cars there a man going through a field with uh, uh, this, just a horse and cart but I mean even the wheel there is an invention I mean do we do we, do we lose all the technological advance and have to reinvent the wheel all over again of course not you know I mean all those that you read the book of Revelation and yet again, you, when it you pictures the new heaven and the new earth, there, are so many of them symbols are taken from Genesis 2 this is where you're coming back to but, but I know there are many <coughs> allegorical things there but, but what do you see? you see all these different cultures in Revelation with all their art, music culture, traditions technological advances surrounding the throne of God and praising Him I mean you have roads there there are a technological advance the streets and and you see all those things will be sanctified without sin and things in this life uh, uh, can be made simple but but you see and that you see that's another thing you know in revelation I mean this really speaks of the kingdom when it says that I speak of a new heaven and a new earth and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. You see, when we think of heaven today, it's the final resting place of the believer, it's not some kind of mystical place. You know, I, the, the newspapers in Britain will have, someone's died, some celebrity. This is how people think. They have a cloud and someone's playing a harp there and... And, you know, a, a soccer player's died, so he's playing soccer there uh, with the Apostle Paul or whatever, even though this guy was completely lost. You know, that that's how the world typifies. But you see, when we think of the new heaven and the new earth, you see, basically all it means there is God's going to redeem the whole universe. The final, what we call heaven, the final dwelling place of the believers, is the new earth. This is where we'll be, you see. Uh, the word heaven in scripture, the way the Hebrews, they use it in three different ways. You have the first heaven where the birds fly. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, the expanse over the waters. You have the second, uh, I mean, my mother would say, yeah, you maybe use this phrase, the heavens have opened. Meaning the clouds. You, you don't, uh, that's what you mean by heaven though. The second heaven, the place where the stars are. To the Hebrew mind. You know. The heavens. Declare the glory of God. You're speaking of the universe there. And then. You have that term Paul says. When when I got caught up. Into the third heaven. Meaning the place where God dwells. You see. It's not like. You know the Mormons. Where you have these three different levels of. Of heaven there. There's only. There's one place. But ultimately the new Jerusalem. Where the dwelling place of God comes down to the new, the new earth there. so when it talks about in Revelation as a, a, a new heaven and a new earth, the final dwelling place where we're going to be in this kingdom it's speaking of a whole renewed creation there you see, just as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, well that means God, he created the stars and the sky he created the universe, he created the world, is the idea Well, When we are told in Revelation he makes a new earth and a new heavens and a new earth meaning a new, redeems the universe. You see what I'm trying to point out here is that the final resting place of the believers in this kingdom is the new earth. That's why our Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. You see In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God, when it was pictured in Israel, with God's people Israel, they inherited a tiny little bit of land, a bit of real estate in the land of Palestine. Whereas in the New Covenant, God's people, the believers, we inherit the whole earth. You see, one is a a little tiny shadow of the other, just like the sacrifices are a tiny shadow of, of Christ. You see... What you have there at the final salvation is God's people, the believers, that this is the kingdom. God's people, this is our ultimate look. God's people, the believers, living in God's place, the new earth, under God's rule. But we know sin there. And remember, whilst we live under his rule, we remain in his kingdom under his blessing. But then we will be forever under his blessing. Because there's no, there's no tree of the knowledge of good or evil, so to speak. So we can never be kicked out of the new earth. So we shall, for, the believers on this new earth, will for, forever enjoy the blessings of God. So, I mean, when, when you think of this new earth, what will it look like? I mean, there there are clues, you see. It, just think of our body, we get a new glorified body at the resurrection well in one sense, you know, we can, we can uh, speculate over what it's like you know, and all these things, and we don't truly know but, but we do have some clues there, it's like a body, don't we? you know, and the same in the new earth, what's it like? well in, in one case, you know, we can't imagine it but in another case, we can, it's, it's like the earth you see, so, so we get clues though what, it, what it's going to be like. But everything is redeemed without sin. And, and also even, you know, the, the language in Revelation of the, uh, the, the final kingdom. You know, there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil there. You know, again, Allegorical ma- language there, but the message is there's no temptation. There. The devil has been taken away. There's no sin, no temptation. And remember, we're allowed to stay in there as long as we, we keep his rule. Well, for those whom God brings back into this kingdom, it's not based upon our ability to obey, obey God, but it's based on Christ, like we sung there. It's based on Christ's ability. To obey God for us so as long I mean this is the deal now for believers even in the kingdom now which I'll explain in, in a moment before we get to the, the kind of final the state of the kingdom for all those who are resting on Christ alone, not in the works but in Christ, as long as Christ is obedient for us we can stay in the kingdom. you know I, I once gave an example at home. Of course, we have to discipline our children when they do wrong and and we should reward them uh, doing right and encourage them and so forth. But maybe maybe sometimes it would be good to say to them, um, I've got this reward at the end of the day and you can have a choice. You can either, if you do good, if you do perfect for the day and you never slip up, then you get it. Um, Or you can have it if Christ is good all day teach them something about trusting in his performance there. But have, have you all realized that? That you cannot be in or you cannot enter the kingdom of God based on your own obedience. And as long as you continue to work and base it on your own works, you will never enter into his rest. But to the one who does not work, Scripture says, but the one who believes on uh, on him who justifies the ungodly the one who trusts in Christ's obedience the one who is dependent upon him you see that is the only reason someone can be right with God based upon what Christ has done based upon his obedience that's the only way we can get into it in the first place because again as long as we we are obedient we can stay in the kingdom but the problem is none of us are we have all sinned and will continue to do so But to the one who trusts in Christ and His obedience, you know, can be based uh, in the kingdom based on Christ. And I just want to, you know, bring out some some of these pictures in Revelation on on the symbolism of the kingdom. You know, uh, Revelation is a book of sevens. Everything in there is basically figurative. You know, sevens, the seven sections. Seven lampstands, so forth. There's seven churches. Well, of course, not not literally. You know, just like the seven spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. But but you have all these pictures there, especially when the when the kingdom is finally pictured with the river there and the, the tri- tree of life, the precious stones, and all forth. And you see, what is all that symbolic of? You see. Even the original tree of life. Back in the garden of Eden. Was only a type. It was only a foreshadow. Of the true tree of life. That will bring us eternal life. You see. In the original language. It's the same word for wood. And the tree Though Cursed is he. Who hangs on the tree. In most other languages. Hangs on the wood. Hangs on the tree. Same thing. We have different words in English. But. You see, just as Adam was a type of Christ and the old earth was a a foreshadow of the new earth and Israel, uh, the Old Testament Israel was a a foreshadow of the new and uh, the land was a foreshadow of the the final earth and so forth and many... uh, The tree of life is ultimately a foreshadow of the cross. I mean, think about this with me. I mean, in Revelation 22, it speaks of the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I mean, I've heard people teach on this that there's going to be this tree there in heaven, they say, that produces bananas one month, uh, apples the next, oranges the next month. But let me ask you this. What are Christians going to be marvelling on for all eternity? Is it some hideous tree that produces bananas one month and then apples the next? Is that what we'll be thanking God for, for all eternity? Is that where we will draw our life from? Or will we be marvelling and feeding on the cross of Christ for all eternity? You see, this is my point. It's knowing the tree that Jesus hung on for our transgressions. That's what gives us life. I mean, think about though when it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Is that supposed to be taken literal there? To mean there's some kind of healing ointment in those leaves? I mean, what's the point when there's no pain or suffering there anyway? Or is it speaking of all the different nations coming under the shade? Coming under the shade of the leaves of that tree. In other words, coming under the rest and shade that is in Jesus Christ, his salvation. That is, by his wounds we are healed. You see... In this life now, a believer is like in Psalm 1 says, we're planted by the, the rivers of water and we produce fruit in our seasons. But in the new earth, in the new glorified body, in the kingdom then, where no sin and temptation is, we will produce good fruit all year round. Is the idea there by the, the different fruits. Because Why will we do this? Because we're, we, we'll have unhindered vision in what Christ has done for us we can often lose sight of Christ in this life but not so then you know the streets are paved with gold there what does he mean by that well I think Bunyan had it right a street is a, a place where you walk on a walk in scripture denotes our life you see no more wood, hay and stubble works there but all our works gold as Bunyan said imagine that all our righteous deeds not filthy rags but gold we'll do things with pure motives and the river of life I mean Christ is the river he's the fountain he's the source of life he, just as in the beginning he created life he's also the giver of life as Jesus said to the woman at the well just ask And he offers this water freely. But if we think of the kingdom now then, we've seen the kingdom as it was in the beginning, pictured in Adam and Eve. We've seen it pictured in the Old Testament, in Israel. We've seen the final kingdom, but what does the kingdom look like now? Well, the kingdom of God now is, of course, the church. And by the church here, I don't mean a building with a steeple on top or a denomination, but, but the believers collectively. As our Lord told the nation of Israel, the kingdom of God is being taken from you and given to a nation or a people, a kingdom, who will produce the fruits thereof. As First Peter 2.9 says, But you, the believers, are a chosen race. You are the Israel now. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possessions. You are subjects of the kingdom if you're a believer in Christ. That you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. You see, this is how the kingdom of God looks now. In this temporal form before the second coming. This is what was beginning to be ushered in here. Uh, the reign, uh, when, uh, the first coming of Jesus, God's people, the believers, living in God's place, the church, the believers uniting together under God's rule. What's God's rule in the church? The law of Christ, which is love, which God has written. Not, it's not an outward law, but it's on our hearts, and. Since staying in this kingdom is all based upon the performance of the king who is Christ, as long as Christ is good enough, we the believers trusting in him remain under his blessing. You see, Christ took all the penalty of the believer's curse. So, for all those who trust in Christ alone, we remain permanently under his blessing. Even before we get to the, the, the new earth. I mean, you see, this is why uh, Paul can say in Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29 that Paul, uh, God is working everything in our lives for good. Everything is work for a blessing because we're permanently under His blessing. It's due to the performance of Christ now. You see, staying in it, an entrance to this kingdom, the condition to stay in it is entirely based the obedience of Christ, acting upon the believer's behalf so the only way someone can be in it is looking to Christ as saviour and I mean think about this as well back in Genesis God created man in our own image in our own likeness in the kingdom there, what happens when someone gets saved? Romans 8 29 he works all things in our lives to conform us, to bring us into the image of Christ into the image of God there you see when God at the original creation God said let us make man in our own image meaning, meaning his character his attributes there he didn't have a body there. Christ had a body later but you know it doesn't mean his body a man in our likeness it means his, his, his attributes his character and so forth well, let us make man to, was to reflect the glory of God. But when God saves a person, same thing. Romans 8:29. God saves again. He, he looks at a guilty sinner whom He justifies, but He saved us for good works. And says, let let us make that person now in our own image, in our own likeness. Of and course, and one of the evidences someone is truly saved, truly believing, is God is working everything in their life. To conform them to the image of God, to the image of Christ. Working, that's how he works things for good. So, let me ask you this, before we move on. Are you in his kingdom? Are you one of God's people live in his church? And the evidence is, you're living under God's rule. That's the evidence here of someone... Uh, his rule is the word of God. You see... In our text in Matthew, Jesus calls people to repent. To come into this kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see... To be in his kingdom means to be under his rule. You see, when Adam and Eve, our forefathers, disobeyed God... They chose not to live under his rule. And it's been the same way with mankind ever since. Well, in order to come back into this glorious kingdom, one must repent. Meaning, come back under his rule. You know, not be like the Pharisees. You see, that was the Pharisees, weren't they? They had a lot of religion. But as Jesus said, they would not have this man reign over them. You see, you can't be in a kingdom without living under the authority and rule of the king. You can't be in a kingdom without having a king over you. So, as Ed, you know, I mean, I'll, get, I'll read this quote from Edward Payson, which is a good one. He said, Mankind seems to consider God as a sort of outlaw. That is a person who has no rights. Or at least they see God as one whose rights be disregarded and trampled on at pleasure. And he points out then, Payson, uh, Payson, how we treat the Bible gives us a clear indication of our feelings and dispositions towards God. Because the Bible, the word of God, is a perfect transcript of the mind of God. And if God were to come and dwell among us, he would teach us the same things that scripture teach. And so therefore, how we feel towards them is how we we feel the same towards God if we reverence and love and obey the scriptures then we reverence and love and obey God but if we dislike or disbelieve the scriptures if we seldom study them or read them only with indifference or neglect then that is the manner in which we treat God so are you in the kingdom if not don't you want to be You know just repent, come back under his rule, believing the good news of what Christ has done to admit you. And you have an invitation, a command to come. You know, it is a command to believe the gospel, to come in if just like I mean, imagine if you got an invitation to the President to go to the White House or the Queen to Buckingham Palace or wherever commanded to come well God has given to all mankind the same invitation they will just bow the knee and come back under his rule trusting in what Christ has done trusting because he paid for my sin and we can come into his his kingdom back under his authority you see how it looks, you know, in the kingdom. We we are all, just as I read there, we are all priests of God in the new kingdom. The idea there is to be in the kingdom of God now and in eternity, to do all things. As Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all that you do for the glory of God. And this can be the same things as before, believe it or not. You see, just like in your workplace, before you could do things for selfish reasons. Well, what happens when you get saved? You have uh, the example in Ephesians and Colossians. we give given principles there of slaves being obedient to their masters. You can take those principles in your workplace. Not just giving lip service, but doing your secular work for the glory of God. Doing it for the Lord. And when he comes, you will receive a reward. And you know, even the most medical cure job can be can be glorious in this state. You know, if you um, to use an old example, I have nothing against cleaning, by the way. Uh, but people, you know, if you hear the term, what would you do for a living? I'm a cleaner. People generally think, well, that's not much of a job. But but if someone said, I'm a cleaner. And then in the next part of the sentence, they said, at the White House, or at Buckingham Palace, or wherever, it puts in a whole new dis- uh, new perspective. You, you'd be saying, uh, Gu- guess who I met today? You know, but just think, you're to do your secular work for the glory of God, for Him. It puts a whole new perspective on it. The same with your studies. The same with mums at home, serving God. You know, I'm no big fan of Billy Graham for various reasons but uh, but I, I do like this his wife um, she had a plaque above a stove uh, an oven at home that said uh, divine service offered up here I think it was three times a day you know that's how you should see your work in the homes it, it, you see it's like you know In Ephesians where it says God has given some apostles, prophets and pastors and teachers, evangelists and so forth for the for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. People take that all wrong today. They think pastors are to equip people to go and preach. That's not what it means there, because if you look what the ministry is that we are to do in the context. Wives, obedient to husbands, children, obedient to parents. You know, deals with people at work and so forth. It's in all of our lives we are correct. But we're to do it as priests of God now, in service to Him. You see, and living under the authority of God's Word, it's going to look different with different people. People have different convictions on certain things. And this, this can be hard sometimes. Because the devil, you know, he comes in and says to you, this, this is so clear in scripture. That he says to you, look, the only reason they don't see it the same way, is if they're compromised. No, God has made it so. There are essential things that we stand as Christians, but then there are other things which you expect godly people to be in heaven for. You know, we use that phrase today, a biblical church. But what's a biblical church? It should mean a church that is trying to follow the Bible. You see, there are unbiblical churches which have no regard for what God's word says. They don't care. But then, there are biblical churches who may do things differently, but just under different convictions. You see, what I'm saying here is the church is not necessarily, uh, not biblical, because it doesn't have exactly the same convictions that we do. But a it, it, well, church is unbiblical when it just, I, I know what the Bible says, but I don't really care and think of that verse in Romans 14 the kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking but righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit you see what was they doing there they was giving the impression that the kingdom of heaven that being in God's kingdom and under his rule was a matter of not eat, eating certain foods and, and doing certain festivals and whole you know it's, basically they was giving the the impression that the kingdom of God being in his kingdom was a list of have-nots, do-nots. Don't be known as Christians more for what you're against than what you're for. You see, there are some people who think holiness is uh, in terms of, you know, uh, think of holiness in that way. You know, you get... Uh, we've had problems with this before. One person thinks I'm I'm so holy I don't even have a bed. I sleep on a mattress. And another guy says, "Well, I'm more holy than you. I don't even have a mattress. I sleep on the floor and eat beans out of a can." That's not holiness. That's what you call is asceticism. You know, there was. A song uh, came into my head this morning, an old one we used to sing when I was little. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. You're probably familiar with the song, but there's a verse in there which I've noticed in a lot of modern hymnals has been omitted. And it says there, the rich man at his castle, the poor man at his gate. People check them out now because of socialism. Oh, that can't be right. How can God ordain someone to be rich and and someone else to be poor and so forth? But as Christians, we should be content in all circumstances. You know, uh, Paul, when he says that famous uh, quote there, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Of course, you can apply it to more things, but the context is, he was content in all circumstances. Whatever circumstances he was in, he was content because his contentment was in Christ. But he says that he was content in times of hardship and trials, in times of poverty. But he was also content in times of prosperity, he said. You know, there are some people who can only be ten- content in prosperity, but not in, in hardship." Because the contentment is in the outward circumstances and not in God. But, but you can have on the other side. You can have some people who are only content in times of poverty. And they're not content and enjoying God's uh, blessings when he's prospering them. You know, I, I don't know if you've, you've ever given a, a child a, a present, whether it's a birthday present or a Christmas present, and... And if they despise it, you know it's an insult to the parent and the same thing when god when God blesses us, and we don't we don't thank him for those things and and enjoy his blessings. don't forget the gi- gi- the giver in those blessings. So as Christians in this kingdom, you know god it shouldn't be a a list of, of have nots and so forth. you know. Uh, a verse that really helped me, Psalm one hundred four, fifteen. I mean, it, it speaks about God being Lord all, all over, all over creation, and how glorious He is, and thankful here. But in verse fifteen of Psalm one hundred four, it says there, and God He gave wine to gladden the heart of man, and oil to make His face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart three things he brings out there bread wine and oil now I, I love uh, Luther pointed out in his commentary there that you know when God gives bread to strengthen a, a man's heart he you know it may be an unbeliever who was in the farm it may be uh, an unconverted person who makes the bread you buy it from but it's still a blessing from God there. You know, Luther's point was, you know, whatever in creation, it, God chooses to bless us. It's still ultimately his control and, uh, and all people are, are ultimately doing his will to, to an extent there. is, is working all things. But, but you see, bread is essential. Or at least it was in, in that culture. You know, we're going to have something else today, but that was the meaning. But you see, wine and oil to make a face shine, where well, you can go without that. What I'm trying to point out here is it's not a it's not a it's not sinful to have something that's not an absolute necessity. You know, God sometimes just gives us things to, to enjoy him in. Uh, and be thankful. for. Well, I'm going to close by reading this uh, it's, a, it's a lengthy quote but it's just so helpful it's by uh, Randy Alcorn and uh, just to explain two, two terms he uses in this uh, one is Christoplatonism uh, that's, that's a, a kind of idea where you mix uh, the Bible with Greek philosophy Plato uh, the idea there uh, with Plato is they, they taught that the material is bad Anything spiritual is good, so uh, anything is bad. You see, it's like sometimes in in Manchester when I witness to a Muslim, they bring this objection up, they say, did God go to the toilet? So my response is, is going to the toilet a sin? They're trying to question the humanity of Christ there. They're saying, well, God could not become a man because that would mean he would have to eat and do, you know, or, or go to the bathroom. It, those things are not but you see that's that's an example of religion of Platonism the idea that the material uh, is bad there you know it's like you know sometimes people get the idea like um, you know what, what, what's worldliness or what's and they think well it, it's worldly to have a TV and then they then they they come to a conclusion sooner or later and think no um, I, I I can see it can be worldly, can be not you know, there's, I can see there are godly men who have a TV in the house so it can't be that but then what happens the Christian then uses a worldly mindset and says well you can have a TV but it's only got to be a certain screen size everything else is worldly above that you, know, you see the problem there that's using a worldly mindset uh, that's being worldly to define what's worldly because all the cults do the same. You know, that that's how they think. But, you see, material is not necessarily bad. It can be used for that. And not, but not necessarily. The other word he uses, uh, close, uh, is asceticism, which the one I mentioned there, you know. Again, the idea of holiness is just self-denials. Like sleeping on a mattress, eating beans or whatever. But anyway, here's the quote. It's so helpful. He says... Suppose you are sick, your friend brings a meal. What meets your needs, the meal or the friend? Both. Of course, without your friend there would be no meal. But even without a meal you would still treasure your friendship. Hence your friend is both your higher pleasure and the source of your secondary pleasure, the meal. Likewise, God is the source of all lesser gods so that when they satisfy us it is God himself who satisfies us. In fact, it is God who satisfies you by giving you the friend who gives you the meal. Whenever I speak of the wonders of heaven and longing for heaven and the multifaceted joys of the resurrected life in the new universe some people respond. But our eyes should be on the giver, not the gift. We must focus on God, not on heaven. This approach sounds spiritual, but it erroneously divorces our experience of God from life, relationships, and the world, all of which God graciously gives us. It sees the material realm and other people as God's competitors. Rather than as instruments that communicate his love and character, it fails to recognize that because God is the ultimate source of joy and all secondary joys emanate from him, to love secondary joys on earth can be and in heaven always will be to love God their source. Though Christ, though Platonism frowns upon the pleasures of the physical world, Mistaking asceticism for spirituality. Scripture says we are to put our hope not in material things, but in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6.17 If he provides everything for our enjoyment, we should not feel guilty for enjoying it, should we? Paul says it is the demons and liars who betray the physical realm as unspiritual forbid people from the joys of marriage including sex and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer First Timothy 4 3-5 Because of the current darkness of our hearts, we must be careful not to make idols out of God's provisions. But once we are freed from sin and we're in God's presence, we'll never have to worry about putting people or things above God. That would be unthinkable. Were we thinking clearly, it would be unthinkable to us now. God is not displeased when we enjoy a good meal, marital sex, a football game, a cozy fire, or a good book. He's not up in heaven frowning at us saying, stop it, you should only find joy in me. This would be as foreign to God's nature as our heavenly father as it would be to mine as an earthly father if I gave my daughters a Christmas gift and started pouting because they enjoyed it too much. No. No. I gave the gift to bring joy to them and to me. If they did not take pleasure in it, I would be disappointed. Their pleasure in my gift to them draws them closer to me, and I am delighted that they enjoy the gift. Of course, if children become so preoccupied with the gift that they walk away from their father and ignore him, that's different. Though preoccupation with a God-given gift can turn into idolatry, enjoying the same gift with a grateful heart can draw us closer to God. In heaven we will have no capacity to turn people or, idol, or things into idols. When we find joy in God's gifts, uh, we will be finding our joy in him. Then he says, All secondary joys are derivative in nature. They cannot be separated from God. Flowers are beautiful for one reason. God is beautiful. Rainbows are stunning because God is stunning. Puppies are delightful because God is delightful. Sports are fun because God is fun. Study is rewarding because God is rewarding. Work is fulfilling because God is fulfilling. Ironically some people who are most determined to avoid the sacrilege of putting things before God Miss a thousand daily opportunities to thank him, praise him and draw near to him Because they imagine they should not enjoy the very things he made to help us to know him and love him God is a lavish giver He who did not spur his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The God who gave us his Son delights to graciously give us all things. These all things are in addition to Christ, but they are never instead of him. They come, Scripture tells us, along with him. If we did not have Christ, we would have nothing. But because we have Christ, we have everything. Hence, we can enjoy the people uh, And the things God has made, and in the process, enjoy God who designed and provided them for His pleasure and for ours. God welcomes prayers of thanksgivings for meals, warm fires, games, books, relationships, and every other good thing. When we fail to acknowledge God as the source of all good things, we fail to, to give Him the recognition and glory he deserves. We separate joy from God, which is like trying to separate heat from fire or wetness from rain. The movie Babette's Feast depicts a conservative Christian sect that scrupulously avoids worldly distractions until a a woman's creation of a great feast opens their eyes to the richness of God's provision. The Vette's Feast beautifully illustrates that we should not ignore or minimize God's lavish creative gifts, but we should enjoy them and express heartfelt gratitude to God for all of life's joys. When we do this, instead of these things drawing us from God, they draw us to God. That is precisely what all things and all beings in heaven will do. Draw us to God, never away from him. Every day we should see God in his creation, in the food we eat, in the air we breathe, the friendships we enjoy, and the pleasures of family, work, and hobbies. Yes, we must sometimes forego secondary pleasures, and we should never let them eclipse God. And we should avoid opulence and waste when others are needed. But we should thank God for all of life's joys, uh, large and small, and allow them to draw us to him. That is exactly what we will do in heaven. So why not start now? You know, I was speaking, one was up in Sedalia, was talking with Clint Leiter, and you know, sometimes it's the case where you have, say, a Christian mother who feels guilty because she's reading a book on gardening or... You know, watching a, a documentary on history or that she's enjoying, but she's, she's thinking, oh, I shouldn't be enjoying this. I should, you know, I should only enjoy reading my Bible, but you know, these are all gifts. And as Clint said there, you know, it's a mark of maturity when you can enjoy a mindless activity like that without, without feeling guilty over it. You know, what did Paul say to the weak? All things are defiled so you know my prayer is that this will cause us to appreciate God more have joy in him be thankful you know we're going to this great kingdom where we'll do this for all eternity so why not start now live under his rule now enjoy God now let's pray Heavenly Father, we have so many things to be thankful for. You gave us your Son to take away our sin, so that we could know you, have eternal life in you, so that our joy could be in God, so that we could rely on you, pray to you, ask of you of all things. We thank you that you care about our needs. We don't have to be anxious about tomorrow, but we just cast our curse upon the Lord because you care for us continually. We thank you that you mold and shape us to be like Jesus Christ. Help us to be a grateful people, a thankful people. To find more ways to trust and thank you. Ways that are already there. Help us, Lord, not to grieve you by going by without saying thanks for even the littlest thing, the fun, friendship, little enjoyments, Help us, Lord, to this, this just seeing in this love that you have for us, increase our love for you and, our, and increase our love and faith our faith in you and our, our love for others. in Jesus name. Amen.